Hello and welcome to Genetically Speaking. In our first season, we delved into the careers of our members within the American Society of Human Genetics. We had great conversations with genetic counselors, researchers, educators, clinicians, and more. We were able to explore their unique journeys and the impact they've made in the world of human genetics and genomics. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome and we're glad to have you here. For our repeat listeners, welcome back. I hope you hear something new that stays with you. Thanks for joining us in revisiting Season 1 of Genetically Speaking. Welcome to the ASHE Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Gunter, and today we're joined by one of my old friends, and I mean old in a good way, uh, Dr. Charles Lee from the Jackson Lab. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. I know you are here for the Membership Engagement Committee meeting, so do you want to tell us a little bit about the committee and also what advantages membership has for ASHG? Yes, so I, this is a new committee at the American Society of Human Genetics. Uh, I think it's a very important uh, com new committee uh, uh, looking at, um, you know, what can we do to not only, it's not a matter of just in, increasing the numbers of uh, members of ASHG, because in some ways, ASHG, in many ways, actually, ASHG is the largest human genetics organization in the world. Um, but I think it's more about engaging them more uh, and um, making sure that they get value out of the society. Uh, it's an incredibly important committee, and I'm thrilled to be a small part of it. Yes, and I know they're lucky to have you. So I know you've been at the Jackson Lab for a while. So first of all, you've escaped the snow to come visit us for a few days, which is probably nice. <laughs> we haven't had very much here. So tell us about what um, you are working on there currently. Yes, so uh, the Jackson Laboratory has, um, most people know the Jackson Laboratory because it's been around for 90 years um, and has been uh, the dominant force in using mouse models to uh, recapitulate and study human diseases. Uh, about nine, 10 years ago, we had um, the, the Board of Trustees of the Jackson Laboratory and the state of Connecticut decided that to do a joint venture to create a new institute uh, for the, which is now referred to as the Jackson Laboratory for Genomic Medicine. So I'm the director of that institute. Got it. And um, and it's timed really well. Why? Because we really are entering into a phase of human genetics now, where it's not just about studying the genes. It's not just even about developing diagnostic assays. We're really entering into um, a an era of being able to do something about it to develop therapeutics, um, uh, especially with the advent of um, gene editing technologies. So this is an area that the Jackson Lab for Genomic Medicine is really trying to maximize and, and, and hone in on. Yeah. Right. So as we're recording, and Dr. Ross and I just talked about this a second ago, um, uh, that we've, it's been reported that there's been CRISPR in vivo uh, editing in eyes for retinitis pigmentosa. We don't have any any uh, data yet as to whether or not it actually worked and benefits, et cetera, but everything seems to have happened so far. Yes. So obviously, do you foresee more of that? Where do you see that going in the future? What do you have your eyes on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think this is a first and very important step, uh, the, all this work that's been done uh, in the retina. Um, and I think... Um, we also have evidence, for example, we have examples in cancer where um, technologies are used to um, repurpose the immune cells uh, to fight uh, lymphomas, et cetera. Um, this is a technology some people would, uh, know as CAR-T therapy. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be more of this happening where essentially, you know, it, in, a, uh, in a basic view, 
we will be able to harness individual cells, cells from individuals, reprogram them, and, and then put them back into that person's body for therapeutic purposes and for uh, different organ systems, uh, different diseases, etc. Uh, the challenge, of course, is going to be that um, when we do the reprogramming, that we don't disrupt something else in the meantime. Yeah. Um, and that's, that is a very big challenge uh, because as much as we know a lot of things about human genetics, there's uh, seems to be infinitely more things we don't. That's what it feels like. Every time we get one answer, it, it opens right. up all these questions. That's right. Yeah. And so at some point, you know, you have to benefit, you have to change, uh, you have to assess the benefits and the risks yeah. associated with any of these uh, trials. But it's something which we also, in my, I firmly believe, we shouldn't be scared about as well. We shouldn't mm -hmm. tackle this head on thoughtfully. Uh, and um, and um, this is progress in science and progress in medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have, I know, been running a lab for some time. So tell us about the challenges of being a PI and running a lab. Do you have advice for people or what's things that people just don't really think about so much? Yes. Uh, so um, I, I can tell you in a heartbeat that um, I've absolutely chosen the right career for me. Um, you know, I have been encouraged uh, to, in my earlier years, to pursue other careers. Um, didn't really see myself getting into science until the fourth year undergraduate uh, years a uh, year when I took on a research project uh, in in my at school. Uh, we did some work, published uh, a, a small paper. I was a co-author on it, but I think what really struck home for me was the fact that you know I didn't really know a lot about the area. I had some guidance on it, but I could actively participate in something. That was the I, I was one of the first people to have observed it, and and that excitement is is very infectious, um, and um, it's, it's so infectious that I would actually say most scientists probably have ninety percent of their time is through going through disappointments in, of experiments, etc. That's why we call it Reese for the trait because you <laughs> exactly. have to search again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but for that few times where it does succeed, um, it, it's an absolute thrill. It's amazing. It's a privilege. Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, um, so as a PI though, uh, running a lab, um, you're 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 certainly passionate about your own research. But I think what I found was one of the major challenges was the human factor of the people in the lab. Each individual that joins your lab, whether they're as a technician, as a trainee, etc. They also are excited generally about science. They should be, uh, but they're also there's human natures, right? Um, they have aspirations, and and they also need to be guided through the lows, etc. And 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 there are times where you may realize that you know maybe this branch of science is not the right thing for them, and to encourage them to look at other areas of science. And we now know that in fact. You can be involved in science in so many different ways now, not just by being at the bench doing research, right. um, and um, and and still be very effective and and accomplish a lot. So, um, I think the um, the for me managing uh, expectations uh, and and being a a guide mm -hmm. uh, for those individuals is very challenging, but when it works out, it's very rewarding as well. 
So it sounds like you also need some training to be a therapist or psychologist as well. <laughs> no, more seriously, um, Aravinda Chakravarti, when I was going into science, uh, strongly encouraged me to take some management classes along with some accounting because that's something else we don't get a lot of, unfortunately. That's right. And yet are required to manage all these budgets and yes. directs and indirects, which change. And oh my goodness, it's, yeah, it's a little crazy. So what, for you, I think you covered this a little bit, what is some of the most rewarding parts of your work other than being one of the first people to see things that you see? Um what is the most one of the most rewarding things? Um, I I would say in addition to just making you know contributing and uh, making discoveries with your colleagues, um, for me I think one of uh, one of the most other rewarding aspects of my job is to actually see people grow. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge and the reward are always linked, right? That's right. That's right. And in some ways, I mean, uh, throughout the years now. Um, I find that there's certain circumstances where, oh, okay, I've seen this before uh, and behavior before, before I know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And just, and, and most times it, it does work, but in some cases it doesn't. And then you realize, you know, everyone is a little different and situations are different. And so, um, no, you know, that it, just when you think you've got the formula, yeah. uh, then you get thrown a curveball. Uh, and so you yourself as a mentor learn as well. Yep. Uh, so for me, yeah, the growth of individuals that are working together with you in science, absolutely fabulous. And and of yourself as well, right? Yes. Over time. Yeah. Yes. If you told me that I would have had some of the jobs that I've held at this point, there's no way, right? I would have laughed at you, right? <laughs> I was a PhD candidate. There's no way. So um, tell us about your first memory of science and how you decided to, it sounds like you in your fourth year, went into research, but how did you decide to go into genetics or science? Yeah. Generally? So, um, well, so I, I actually, the reason I went into genetics was during my undergraduate years, um, I have to say, I just was not a good memorizer. I, and I hated memorizing yeah. just for the sake of memorizing. Yeah. And I took my first genetics course at the University of Alberta, um, our Genetics 197. That was in my second year. And I was fascinated by the fact that genetics didn't really require a lot of memorizing. You had to understand concepts, but it was more about problem solving. Mm-hmm. I loved that. And um, and so I took more genetics courses. And as I mentioned, in my fourth year, I got a chance to actually do some research and co-published a paper. That was great. I would say the one of the most impactful memories I had early on in my career was... Um, when I was a master's student, and I was given a project on uh, breast cancer and her tumor amplification and association prognosis, and that failed because her the DNA was all degraded, uh, and, and there was on top of the little data I got, there was absolutely no correlation. Oh boy, you like any negative data? Like <laughs> but at the same time, I was just toying around with a project um, on chromosome evolution the Indian Lunjap chromosomes, which are very large, oh, yeah. and looking for evidence that those were a fusion of smaller ancestral deer chromosomes, uh, deer, uh, chromosomes from ancestral deer species. And um, other people had tried it, not really found anything. So I used a technique which is called FISH, for instance, inside hybridization, and, and just played around with the Indian Lunjap chromosomes with telomeric and centromeric sequences. And during the process of doing it, I actually forgot to do one critical step of the experiment. And that was, we at that time, fish experimenters always baked the slides before doing the hybridization. Oh boy. Turns out 
that's not a good thing. Turns out that's that's good to give you big pros on banding, but it reduces the hybridization efficiency. So you don't get good signals. Forgot to do the step. All of a sudden, I saw these bright signals throughout the chromosomes. And I, that's amazing. Isn't that? You know, yeah. and, and that's, again, one of the wonderful things about science. You yeah. screw up. I was about to say reinforcement, but a lot of bad behavior, but okay. <laughs> so um, you've got these beautiful, very clear signals that said, yes, these are fusions of ancestral deer species. Wow. Two in the morning, I called up my supervisor right away. As one does. As one right. would. And, and I spoke for 15 minutes trying to describe the, the results and like that. Come on, Dallas. I messed up, but it's okay. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, again, he saw it. He, he did not come down that yeah. at 2 a.m., but he came and saw it the next morning, got really excited about it. Um, to me, that was a big turning point in my life because um, I'm not a very confident person, Chris. Um, and I know that I, make mistakes. I suppose it's all we all will. I think I make more mistakes than the average person does. But the fact that I could make a mistake and still be successful, very cool. That's a, but that's great. I mean, that happens all the time, right? That's yeah. yeah, that's great. So I know that you have a lot on your plate. But one of the things we like to ask people in this is what you do outside of the lab. Assuming you go outside of the lab or the office anytime, what kind of hobbies, interests do you do outside? Yes. So, um, um, I'm told that I should be exercising more, and I, I generally try to do that, but it just doesn't seem to happen. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I will keep trying. The, the, to be honest, so I have a family. Uh, I'm married with uh, three girls. Um, oldest is 20, then 15, and 11. And um, to be able to spend time with them is precious. And, and for me, that's the balance between work and my personal life. And so I will, whenever I have time, I will spend it with my kids, with my wife, um, doing whatever they enjoy. Well, you're in the teenage years, so that's probably involves being a taxi service. So <laughs> my engineer went for a while. So I'm, I'm in that face. A taxi service. Yeah. Uh, I am, I'm happy to be their chauffeur. <laughs> and that's when you hear interesting stuff when they're in the backseat talking to their friends. That's yeah. what I'm learning. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that's exactly what a lot of us do that outside of lab. And then I, getting back to science, I know you um, well from your work on structural variation, obviously. So where are you still working in that area, and where do you see that going in the near future? I think, um, so it's really amazing where some of our first work in this area was published in 2004. Um, and it was an uphill battle to get people to, number one, the, the science, greater scientific community, number one, accept that there's a lot of structural variation out mm -hmm. there in our genomes. And then two, to uh, accept the fact that this is important. Uh, Didn't I handle one of your papers? You the name of it. <laughs> That's why I'm so honored to do it. <laughs> I remember being like, you don't understand. This is so important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I feel like, especially the last four four years or so, it's really caught on absolutely. More. And uh, and I think the advent and the progression of long read technology yes. uh, has helped a lot too. Yeah. So um, you know there there have been studies uh, from our structural genomic variation consortium, <laughs> which is a consortium of about fifty computational people from around the world getting together every week to find out what's the best way to find these things and characterize them. Um, you know, some of our latest findings is that in fact now with the long read technologies you are picking up, on average, in a given genome, about 26,000 structural variants 
which cannot be picked up reliably with short read sequence. But that's so important. But yeah. per person. Yeah. And so all that information uh, is not being incorporated in any of the GWAS studies or, or so forth. And we know from, uh, I've just worked on autism, from neuropsychiatric disorders, it's so important with the CNBs, right? So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that work uh, continues on, mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm so privileged to be part of this consortium that's really tackling this, this difficult part of the genome. Um, but, you know, we talk about personalized genomics and personalized medicine all the time, and you really can't do personalized genomics or medicine if you're not capturing all the variants. Yep. And so to us, this is absolutely critical that as a scientific community, we really need to get a handle of it. Awesome. So, Particularly when there could be genes in those, uh, re uh, regularly genes in those variants. So yeah, it affects everything. And, and you yeah. know, when there's not genes, there's right. regulatory elements. Of course. And, and so um, so I, I, I think now um, with the long-read technologies uh, continuing to improve, uh, as a community, we are now able to get all the SNPs, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, all the structural variants, an entire genome for diagnosis purposes, for our association with diseases, et cetera. It's absolutely fabulous. Yeah, it's a whole new era there. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the ASHG podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Gunner and joined by Dr. Charles Lee. Thank you for joining us. It's a wonderful pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Genetically Speaking. Join us again next week for another episode. 